Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. We'll continue with our hymn of the month, Jerusalem the Golden. Jerusalem the golden, with milk and honey blessed, the promise of salvation, the place of peace and rest. We know not, oh, we know not, what joys await us there. The radiant sea of glory, the bliss beyond compare. Within those walls of Zion sounds forth a joyful song, as saints join with the angels and all the martyr throng. The princes ever with them, the daylight is serene. The city of the blessed shines bright with glorious sheen. Around the throne of David, the saints from Carilees, Praise loud their songs of triumph to celebrate the feast. They sing to Christ their leader who conquered in the fight, who won for them forever their gleaming robes of white. O sweet and blessed country, the home of God's elect. O sweet and blessed country, that faithful hearts expect. In mercy, Jesus, bring us to that eternal rest. With you and God the Father and Spirit ever blessed. Let's continue with our catechism and Bible memory work. This is from the table of duties uh, to youth, to youth. It's from 1 Peter 5. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may lift you up in due time. Yeah, it's uh, lift you up in due time, not life you up in due time. It's probably my fault. First Peter 5, 5-6. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. In Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right. Um, the kids can go off to Sunday school. For the hymn of the month, um, there's a couple more things I want to point out about Jerusalem, the Golden. But I'm going to save that for next week. This week, in my little section on hymnody for Bible study, I want to talk because... Uh, of what we have, I want to talk about our hymn of the day today in church. So if you look in your bulletins, um, you know, before the sermon, after the gospel, uh, we have the hymn of the day, Wake Awake for Night is Flying. That is what is uh, often referred to, this hymn, as the king of Lutheran chorales. If you've ever heard that phrase, the king of Lutheran chorales. Um, in other words, it's kind of the most famous uh, Lutheran hymn in some ways. I mean, we have, of course, A Mighty Fortress is probably the most famous today. But uh, throughout history um, and in the sense of the music, uh, this Hymn, Wake Awake for Night is Flying, is one of the most uh, famous and renowned Lutheran hymns. So I want to give you a little background on this, uh, just because, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting, but also um, to show the kind of influence of Lutheranism on uh, music, and uh, it's also a good story about God's provision, so you'll see what I mean in a minute. But uh, if you look at the, the hymn... In the hymnal, Wake Awake for Night is Flying, uh, you'll see a couple things. One, it's written by a guy named Philip Nikolai. Philip Nikolai. number of uh, hymns that Philip wrote. And uh, Philip Nikolai was a pastor in a place, I think, called Unz, like U-N-N-S, I think, um, in Germany. Uh, during a massive plague, uh, plague, massive plague, and uh, there were times. I think the town he was in um, 
around like the the plague that went through. I believe it killed his wife and um, around like 1,300 villagers of this uh, little town in Germany. And there were times where he had literally uh, like 100 funerals a week um, that he was in charge of. So imagine uh, if if the if the ladies get concerned about the luncheon and all the all the things for you know Friday, just remember at least you don't have 99 more to do for it. Um, it's a, it's only one. So uh, Philip Philip Dickley had a, like a hundred funerals a week <laughs> um, at at a time, which is is kind of insane to think about. But he remained faithful, right? It would be at times like that you would think that it would be easy to uh, lose faith, um, and to uh, when you're burying your own family members and your you know. Um, a lot of your parishioners, many, many of your parishioners, it would be easy to think, you know, what what is God doing by this? But if you read his hymns, uh, this is when he wrote his hymns. And they're, they're really signs of great faithfulness on his part. And um, he wrote not only uh, faithful hymns, but beautiful hymns. So the poetry is uh, beautiful. Wake, awake, for night is flying. The watchmen on their heights are crying. Awake, Jerusalem, arise. Midnight hears the welcome voices at the thrilling cry rejoices. Oh, where are ye, ye virgins wise? The bridegroom comes awake, your lamps with gladness take. Alleluia, with bridal care yourselves prepare to meet the bridegroom who is near. Which this is the um, story of Matthew 25, which we're going to read today in church. Um, The ten virgins, the wise and foolish virgins. And... um, you can see a lot of things in this hymn. One, um, the I love this line, the midnight hears the welcome voices. So sometimes when we think about the coming judgment of Christ, we think of it in kind of negative terms or scary terms, fearful terms, that the judgment's coming and, and we're afraid of how we're going to be judged. But uh, Nikolai recognized that for the Christian, the coming judgment of Christ, this is a welcome cry. Right, we're we're welcome to hear that Christ is coming again. We want to hear this this message of salvation um, because we know that for us the coming judgment of Christ is uh, eternal life. It's it is salvation. Um, but regardless, uh, this Lutheran chorale. So when we talk about Lutheran chorales, um, what we're really talking about is the music, uh, the the tune, if you will, or the setting. And if you remember kind of Reformation history, the lay people were not allowed to read the Bible, right? But they also weren't really allowed to sing in church. Um, In the late medieval Roman Catholic Church, maybe some choirs would sing um, and the priests would sing, but it was all in Latin. And it, it wasn't in the... The words of the people, the people weren't singing, you know, like we sing hymns in English. Uh, The people weren't singing the songs of uh, praise and worship in their own language. Um, They maybe responded to a few things in Latin, but they probably didn't really understand what they were singing. And uh, a lot of it was a real travesty in some ways that people weren't able to express their worship in song. Uh, Christ commands us to, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, 
And that wasn't happening a lot in the late medieval Roman Catholic Church. Um, and this is something that we don't think about as in terms of like one of the great reformations uh, or great changes in the reformation of the church all the time. But one of the, the greatest things that was allowed to happen that was a return to the Bible was that people could sing again in church um, and sing in their own language and, and get, bring praise and worship and thanksgiving through song uh, to the to the Lord. And when we think about Lutheran chorales, so these pastors, including Luther, like we've talked about before, and Philip Nikolai, when they started to write these uh, Lutheran chorales, not only were they writing um, music and, and text for these hymns, but they were writing whole settings. So the difference between um, a tune and a setting, uh, musically speaking, is the tune is just the melody. Right, it's just one line of music. It's just the the top line of music. That's what we normally sing in church. Is we most people sing the melody, but um, if you look at the hymn, so in the bulletin, it's just it only has the melody printed. But if you look in the hymnal, um, you got not just one line of music, but you got four lines of music. Right, you have uh, the soprano line, but you also have the alto line and the tenor line and the bass line. And all of those together, which Donna plays on the organ, uh, that's the setting, right? And these Lutheran chorales included the whole setting. And uh, you've probably been at churches before or heard before in your life when um, – and the choir does this at times – where they uh, – Lutherans especially like to sing all four parts in four-part harmony, right? You've heard that term before, four-part harmony. Well – that really didn't come into the church until Lutheran chorales. Four-part harmony, um, that, it's not an invention of Lutheran chorales, but for worship in the church, that's when it came into the church, was, was Lutheran chorales. And so all of a sudden we went from um, the people not really singing at all and, and not singing in their own language to singing these beautiful four-part harmonies uh, in worship and praise to God in their own language. So it's a huge huge change in the church, and that really influenced a lot of music. So um, so these Lutheran chorales, uh, the, the, so there's the king of Lutheran chorales, which is um, Vakit Af uh, is the name of, which means wake awake um, in German. Vakit Af. Um, that's wake awake. That's the king of Lutheran chorales, um, which will sing today. Wake, awake, for night is flying. The watchmen on the heights are crying. Um, absolutely beautiful piece of music. There's also the Queen of Lutheran Chorales, uh, which I marked here, which is our hymn, also a Philip Nikolai hymn. So Philip Nikolai is credited with the King and Queen of Lutheran Chorales. Um, and the Queen is... Our hymn, O Morning Star, How Fair and Bright, um, which if you – I won't write, write the German down, but it's uh, Wie schon uh, luchtet. Um, o morning star, how fair and bright, you shine with God's own truth and light, aglow with grace and mercy. Um, also just a fantastic hymn. Well, anyway, these uh, – King and Queen of Lutheran Chorales, these two hymns, um, they've been in the Lutheran tradition since Nikolai wrote them. And uh, plenty of other Christians have picked these up and, and love these. Um, they're 
they're considered to be some of the most renowned and beautiful and um, kind of famous pieces of church music throughout history. Um, not not everyone, uh, not every Christian, every every place, you know, knows of them. But uh, regardless, they are very renowned for their beauty. Now, what I want to end on with this that kind of shows their influence is that these Lutheran chorales not only influenced the church is worship, but they also influenced um, kind of the, in some ways, the if we think about like music throughout history, musical history, um, some of the most successful and most beautiful pieces of music throughout history. So you've probably heard of this guy before, Johann Sebastian Bach. You had to learn about him no matter what school you went to, probably in music class. Well, uh, Bach was a Lutheran and he wrote some things called cantatas. And cantatas, yeah, cantatas. And Bach's cantatas, which are very, very famous, are pieces of choral music, probably 20 to 30 minutes long normally, uh, that are based on nothing other than Lutheran chorales. So if you go home and you look up uh, Vakath Af Cantata Bach on YouTube, uh, you'll find a very beautiful piece of music. Um, you can find choir singing it, and uh, it's got millions of views on YouTube, and it's all a Lutheran chorale, um, right? It's it's based on these these Lutheran chorales. Uh, there's a couple other very famous Bach cantatas based on Lutheran chorales. Um, there's Vakadoff. Uh, there's also he also has a cantata based on um, A Morning Star, How Fair and Bright, and uh, he's also got one based that's very famous. I I always listen to these. So I always, on Epiphany, I'll always listen to the cantata for A Morning Star, How Fair and Bright. I started to listen on the way here this morning to the Vakadoff cantata. I'll listen to it all the way through and on the way to Oxford this afternoon. And um, then at Easter, he's got my favorite one, which is based on Luther's chorale uh, for Luther's Easter hymn, um, uh, Christ Jesus Lay in Death Strong Bands. Uh, Kristen... Uh, what's the German for that? That's Lent, Holy Week, Holy Week, Holy Week. Four. Uh, Christ log in uh, Todespan. Uh, Christ Jesus lay in Deathstrong Man. Uh, he's got a beautiful cantata on that. So, um, and there's tons of other ones too. But um, yeah, a lot of box music is based on these Lutheran chorales. And so um, these are – as a Lutheran, you should be proud of this heritage. That's what I'm saying. This is uh, – we have musically rich uh, uh, heritage. And if you go to other churches, if you've ever been to another church, oftentimes – I mean obviously um, contemporary worship is a whole other beast, but – um, if you go to like a Catholic church still today, most people don't sing. Most people kind of stand uh, – your average Catholic church, uh, my understanding, and this has been my experience. I've 
only been a few times to Roman Catholic services, but um, most people just kind of sit there with their mouths shut and look at the hymnal. Um, Lutherans, and, and, and of course, there's always going to be some people who do that no matter what church you go to, right? Because not everyone's comfortable singing, but I try and help people be comfortable singing and make it part of the culture here. That's why we spend time on hymnody and Bible study every week. Uh, because it is such a rich heritage, and Christ commands us uh, to sing to him in song, him in spiritual song. And um, that is something that Lutherans have always excelled at uh, across the board, uh, generally speaking. Lutheran, Lutheran churches uh, are known that it might be – it's kind of one of those random facts that people know about Lutheran churches is that Lutherans like to sing. And they'll sing in four-part harmony, right? So mm-hmm. what's that uh, guy that used to be on uh, NPR, Lake Wobegon, all that? Oh, uh, Garrison Keillor. Yeah, Garrison Keillor. He's ELCA, but um, you know that's kind of one of those Lutheran things that he would talk about is that Lutherans can sing. And they'll, they'll sing um, sometimes in, in harmony, and they know their music, right? So anyway, I just wanted to uh, talk about that because – it comes up twice a year, the King and Queen of Lutheran chorales, once in Epiphany and once at the end, last Sunday of the church year. So I wanted to bring that up. Uh, but next week I'll, I got one more thing to talk about with Jerusalem the Golden, so we'll do that as well. But they, the Jerusalem the Golden and, and Wake Awake, I mean, they kind of go together, right? Uh, awake Jerusalem arise. So there's some connections there as well. In the Bible memory work, uh, we have these verses from 1 Peter 5 about youth. So it's uh, worth noting, I think the main point here, is that when Peter gives advice to youth, uh, especially to young men, the advice is uh, humility. That's the main main piece of advice. And that's something we talked about with Rehoboam last week is that at different times in life, uh, different kinds of people, men and women, are given to different temptations, right? So um, young men are given to pride. Young women are given to immodesty. Um, older men are given to uh, mammon. Um, older women are given to gossip. That these are just different sins at different times in life that tend to plague different types of people at different times. And um, Peter gives this advice to young men, to youth, that uh, humility is the key. And if you want to read more about that, um, specifically the book of Proverbs is also great for that. That said, these things always apply to all Christians, right? Um, it's not like uh, – Young, young men aren't plagued by any other sin or uh, women aren't plagued by humility at all or something like that. Um, these all apply to all Christians. Uh, but at the same time, it's worth noting kind of like, okay, what should my focus in this time of my life be? Things like that. So, And there's more than one type of sin that plagues a certain type of person as well, right? So um, – Young men are also plagued by things like lust as well as pride. Um, but 
but it's good to to think about those things to know what to be on watch for um so the the next verse verse seven is going to continue um humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god that at the proper time he may ex- i know that from a different version i think the nkjv probably but that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you be watchful be sober-minded because the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour resist him firm in your faith that's first uh, peter 5 7 so the idea is to to be watchful for these type of things um, for the sins that might particularly plague you all right uh we'll continue then with uh is that anyone have any questions or comments on either the king and queen of lutheran corrals or on first peter 5 and and to youth the other thing peter says about youth there is to learn from the older men which is that's also common when paul talks about in the pastoral epistles about how a church is supposed to function that the younger men should learn things from the older men and the younger women should learn things from the older women um that's kind of what i'm trying to do with the men's group uh, to some degree, is trying to connect the older men and the younger men so that the younger men can learn life lessons from the older men. So we're working on it. We're, we're, we're trying. All right. So we'll go uh, into Rehoboam. Last week we left off um, talking exactly about, about that, that... Uh, Rehoboam inherited the throne from Solomon, and when he did so, he uh, asked for advice from the older men, which was good, but then he didn't take it because he didn't like it um, because it involved him humbling himself. And so instead he sought advice from the younger men, if you remember, and – when he sought advice from the younger men, they said uh, – and what he was seeking advice on was how to treat his people under his uh, throne, how to, treat, how to treat his citizens because Solomon had instituted these taxes and had made things very difficult for the people. And uh, the older men said, uh, lighten up. right? They'll respect you more if you lighten the load on them. And um, the younger men said – uh, no, make it even harder on them. You know, put your foot down, show them, show them who's boss. Well, uh, he was uh, cocky. He did not take Christian counsel. He did not take the counsel of the elder men, and uh, he made things harder on the people. And this caused the split of the kingdom. This is what caused the divided kingdom. So when we've been talking about the divided kingdom, this is the source: is a young man's pride, uh, and. In verse 16 of uh, 1 Kings 12, uh, you can see here how Israel departs. So there was, if you remember, um, in the northern kingdom we had Jeroboam, who was kind of the leader of the revolt against Rehoboam. And um, Israel, the northern kingdom, so the ten tribes uh, that were not – Judah and Benjamin uh, did not listen to what the king said. What share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. 
to your tents, O Israel. Now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents, but Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. So this is the division of the kingdom. Now, I don't think we got all the way to this last week, but I brought up 2 Samuel 7, which is when God had promised to David an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that wasn't going to have an end, a kingdom that the Messiah was going to come from. Uh, that they, there was going to be a king that was going to come that was going to reign forever, a, a son of David. And when David falls and when uh, Solomon inherits the throne, everyone thinks, oh, maybe it's Solomon. And then Solomon takes many wives and concubines and Solomon gets carried away by the false religions of some of his wives uh, that starts to come into question. And so then Solomon has a son, and you would think, oh, okay, uh, this is, I mean, this is a constant theme throughout Scripture that um, we're constantly looking for this Messiah, right? In Genesis, we're constantly looking for the seed um, promised in Genesis 3. We're constantly looking for the way that God is going to bless the nations through Abraham, Genesis 12. Uh, in the judges, we're constantly looking for the Savior that people aren't going to fall back into sin. Um, we're constantly throughout Scripture looking for this this eternal kingdom, this king. And uh, when this happens, you can see by the way that Jeroboam and his crowd respond to Rehoboam that this throws Second Samuel 7 into major um, doubt, right? What share have we in David, right? So the, the southern kingdom, the, the major difference between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, between Israel and Judah, is that Israel, as we saw, basically remains evil through and through uh, the whole time. They got little, a few glimpses of righteousness. But we know, based on uh, Jacob's promise to Judah, remember back at, at the end of Genesis when Jacob uh, promises to his ch- children all the different blessings and curses to all the 12 different tribes, the, the Lion of Judah, the Messiah, is coming from the tribe of Judah. Right, so we know, and and it's going to be, and what tribe is David in? Judah. Judah. Right. So uh, the tribe of Judah, the line of Judah, the son of David, the Messiah. We know it's coming from this line, and so when Israel splits and goes up north, we know that's not where we're looking. Right. The the reader of scripture knows that's not where the Messiah is going to come from. In the history of Judah. Right. Of course, reading now from the New Testament back, we know when Christ comes and who he is. But if you kind of put that out of your mind and think about when you're reading through the Old Testament, if you don't know what's going to happen, this is the place, the southern kingdom, the tribe of Judah. This is the place where we're looking for the Messiah. 
right? And so we do get glimpses of that in these good kings here and there throughout the history of Judah. So if you have your, um, if you happen to have your Old Testament reference sheet, if you don't, that's okay. But when you're looking at this chart here and um, you're looking at start slash end column, it, it tells you um, if they started good or evil and if they ended good or evil. And there's a few more good, there's not many, but there's a few more goods on the Judah side than there is on the Israel side, right? Um, the only one we have is uh, Captain Jehu, uh, who starts good but still ends evil. Um, he, he takes one step back from the, the Baal worship and goes back to golden calf worship in Israel, if you remember that story in Second uh, Kings 9 to 10. But um, other than that, it's, it's basically all evil in Israel. But we are looking for this good king who's going to come and reign forever. And uh, that's what we're looking for from the, the tribe of Judah. Now, Rehoboam um, starts – he starts out evil, right? He starts out like we've talked about um, putting this uh, harsh amount of uh, – well, taxes and then, and then other kinds of harshness on his people. And um, that causes Israel to leave. But – we got to keep that in mind that this this moment in Scripture is major in that this throws – this is one of those big questions. How is this going to be resolved? right? How are we going to come back to 2 Samuel 7? How is God going to work this out? Because right now it doesn't seem – it doesn't seem good. right? It doesn't seem good. Um, the kingdom has split. Uh, how is this – I mean how is this supposed to be an eternal kingdom if all of a sudden the 12 has split in – to two different directions and everything is in chaos. Okay, so let's uh, keep moving forward here. Um, Rehoboam uh, remains a certain amount of evil. And um, in fact, to start with, he gets a little bit more evil. So uh, if you are kind of following along in the scripture, we're looking at like 1 Kings 14 around verse 21. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Come on in. And um, when Rehoboam's reigning in Judah, we get a couple of interesting details here. So first of all, in in that verse 21, his mother's name was Nama in Ammon and Ammonitis, Ammonitis, <laughs> uh, a woman of Ammon, of an Ammonite woman, a woman of Ammon, and. Uh, if you remember the Canaanites, right, we have in the land, in the region of Canaan, we have the Ammonites, the Perizzites, the Hittites. You know, you always got those those big itelists um, in, in the Old Testament. Well, one of those places is Ammon, uh, which is not one of uh, the tribes of Israel, right? This is not one of Jacob's people. And so remember what Solomon's downfall was. It was that he had married these women outside of uh, the uh, Old Testament Christianity religion. He had married these people that he was not supposed to marry. Right back, way back when in Joshua's time, they were supposed to conquer these people. They weren't supposed to intermarry them because God knew if they intermarried them, some of them were going to fall into the others' religions. 
And, of course, that's exactly what happened to Solomon. Well, Rehoboam, who's chosen to reign, uh, he's not a pure blood, right? Um, he's not um, one of purely the tribe of Judah. His mother is a Canaanite woman. His mother is an Ammonite woman. And um, at, then right after that, we, right after we find that out, uh, Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, wooden images on every hill and under every green tree. And there were also perverted persons in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So Rehoboam goes and he institutes these places of worship for these false religions. And you got to think that this is kind of how he grew up, right? This is how um, this is the religion of his mother. And these are the religions uh, that Solomon had fallen into. Uh, the worship, of the the idolatry, the worship of these false gods, Rehoboam goes and and sets up. Um, and he then, so that so that's one thing to keep in mind, is that Rehoboam's uh, wickedness is, in some sense, a continuation of what Solomon had done. Right? This is um, a, a kind of snowball effect um, going down through the generations. If you flip over to Second Chronicles, so we have um, we're in this place where we have the same story being told by two different accounts in two different books, once in First Kings and another time in Second Chronicles. If you look over at Second Chronicles uh, 11, uh, you can see when Rehoboam is reigning that let me find the verse. So down around verse 18, uh, Rehoboam falls into the same heirs as Solomon. Uh, He takes for himself uh, many wives and concubines. So if you look um, at verse 21, now Rehoboam loved Machah, the granddaughter of Absalom, which we're going to talk about, more than all his wives and concubines. So he took for himself 18 wives and 60 concubines and begot 28 sons and 60 daughters. Polygamy never really works out well in the Bible. <laughs> so um, just for the record, tends not to work out well. Uh, Rehoboam falls into the same kinds of sin as his father did. right? And this is a general truth uh, that I think scriptures bear witness to, is that it's good to know what kind of sins your parents are given to. I think blood is very powerful. I think uh, nature, nature and nurture both have to do with how a person is. But there is a genetic predisposition to certain sins. Um, whether or not we can prove that scientifically or not, I don't know. But it has been shown over and over again, anecdotally at least, that. Um, Sons are tend to be given to the same sins as their father. Uh, that you can see this with like things like alcoholism, which I think has been to some degree proven to be genetic, right? You can even see this with um, 
uh, kids who are adopted that they'll find out later that you know they became an alcoholic even though they never even knew their father um, who was also an alcoholic things like that so um, I think blood is powerful and uh, Rehoboam ends up doing the same thing that his father Solomon did uh, that caused his father Solomon to, to fall in this way uh, he took for himself many many wives and concubines and uh, fell into their ways and wiles and uh, started to again build these shrines and these places to these false gods um, now interesting is that the one he loves the most Makkah is the granddaughter of Absalom and if you remember the story of Absalom does anyone remember the story of Absalom Absalom is the son of David who tried to take over David's reign right he tried to stage a coup against his father and David loved Absalom um, and and refused to fight it fight against him um, he protected his kingdom but uh, David Absalom is the one David wept over whenever he found out that Absalom died in battle um, even though Absalom was completely unfaithful to him but he still loved him as a son didn't David put to death the person that claimed to kill Absalom that was the person who claimed to kill uh, Saul yeah. So, um, anyway, but it's interesting that Rehoboam's wife, who he loves the most, uh, is the granddaughter, um, so some cousin, some level of distant cousin, of the one who was rebellious against David, right? Which I think shows there. Um, that kind of in the nature of Rehoboam is rebellion, that he uh, is given to this this form of rebellion, of um, rebelling against, again, 2 Samuel 7, uh, the, the line of David, the eternal kingdom that, that Christ has set forth. And so uh, it's kind of interesting that, that that's the, the girl that he falls for the hardest, so to speak. All right. Um, So we talked about nature and blood being powerful. One thing I would also say here that we can learn is the importance of Christian company. So the Proverbs give lots of advice about this, but one way to kind of battle your um, sinful nature is to put yourself with people who aren't going to cause you to sin or cause you to fall into your temptation. That's right. So um, if Rehoboam struggles with lust and women, <laughs> maybe he shouldn't go to places and hang around places where there's a lot of women that he could potentially uh, turn into concubines, right? Um, maybe he shouldn't spend time in his uh, mother's cults. Uh, and this is true for us as well. Um, whatever sins we're given to, we should try and be around people who aren't going to encourage us in that. Uh, right? If you look at the people Rehoboam's around, um, the people that are mentioned in these stories, it's people who cause him to sin more and more. And so I think uh, the importance of Christian company is something to think about there. All right, we'll keep moving in the story here. There's no questions on any of that. 
So what happens is um, after two years of apostasy, there's a prophet that comes, Shemamiah, who uh, doesn't get any book written about him or anything like that. Or he doesn't write any books in the Old Testament. But uh, you can see Shemaiah is the uh, prophet um, for both Rehoboam and Abijah in Judah. So he's going to be around. He's the one of the, the kind of first of God's prophets here at this time. And Shemaiah comes uh, to Rehoboam. This is Second Chronicles 12, uh, looking around verse um, 5. We'll back up and talk about the first four verses in a second. But uh, Shemaiah comes and um, tells Rehoboam that uh, he's forsaken the Lord and he needs to repent. Because otherwise, and this is the first four verses in um, 2 Chronicles 12, that the Lord sends Egypt, uh, Shishak, the king of Egypt, to come up against Jerusalem, for they had transgressed against the Lord. So uh, this is very common throughout the Old Testament and throughout the divided kingdom, is that the Lord will use these pagan nations like Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. We talked about Assyria a lot with Israel. Uh, to come against his people as a form of punishment for them, uh, for their unfaithfulness. And so here the Lord starts that with Egypt, that Shishak, the king of Egypt, uh, comes up against Jerusalem um, because the Lord transgressed against them. And then the Lord sends Shemaiah to tell Rehoboam this is why this is happening. Now, um, verse 6, there is this glimpse of hope. This glimpse of repentance, the leaders of Israel and the king, that's Rehoboam, humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. So something we talked about a lot with Israel is the three needs of a Christian king to be faithful and to be a good king. They need the word. They need right. They need the right word. They need the right worship. And they need prayer. And so when they receive this right word from the prophet and they recognize it and they humble themselves, just kind of prayer and worship, uh, the Lord delivers them. Uh, the Lord uh, takes uh, the he grants them some deliverance from the people of Egypt. He doesn't uh, over he doesn't overflow with his wrath. Right. He. He holds back his wrath. Now, uh, when he does that, this is the same story of the judges, right? What's the cycle in judges? The Lord sends them into captivity for a time. Whenever they're oppressed, they repent. And when they repent, God sends them a judge to rise up and deliver them. And the judge rises up and delivers them. But then what do they do? They go fall back into their old ways. Well, that's what happens with Rehoboam. Right, so when God uh, delivers them a little bit out of Egypt's hand, he uh, falls back um, into, into sin. And um, when this happens, uh, so if we – we'll skip ahead uh, to the end of Second Chronicles 12 real quick. Um, Rehoboam is going to remain for the rest of his uh, kingdom basically evil. Um, if you look at verse 14, verse 14 begin there. 
And he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Right? He didn't hold to right worship. He didn't hold to right prayer. He didn't hold to the right word. He remained evil the rest of his days until Abijah. Uh, so that's going to be the end of Rehoboam. Before that, this is what I want to end on talking about for Rehoboam. But I think this is a very interesting thing that happens is that God sends this punishment on Judah in Jerusalem to the temple. And what he does is he sends um, Egypt to come and take the treasures of the house of the Lord. So this we're backing up to verse nine. Shishak, the king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and away the gold shields that Solomon had made. What he's, what he's talking about here is the temple. Remember that Solomon had built this temple. And when we talked about the temple, uh, a couple of the things we talked about were the reverence with which the temple was built. Right, um, The cedars of Lebanon were brought in uh, from afar, the, the best choicest wood. Things were plated in gold. Um, everything was very reverent, the best that they could afford. Now, it wasn't huge. right? If you remember um, when we looked at the measurements of the temple, the temple wasn't um, overdone. right? It wasn't uh, bigger than they needed. It was what they needed. It was what God had commanded them. But it was very reverent, and the materials used mattered, right? Um, the materials used were chosen to be the best of the best things for the worship of God, right? Um, remember, right worship, that's what we needed. Uh, we needed good worship. And that reverence in the temple uh, mattered. Well, what happens here is you can see how much of a punishment it is because God takes away from them through the people, through the king of Egypt, um, he says, you don't deserve this nice stuff, right? Um, and he takes away the gold, all the gold things, the gold shields that Solomon had made in the temple and the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the temple. Um, he takes them away from the people of Judah. And then the people of Judah um, replace them with this... Uh, what we just call a cheap imitation. Um, they replace gold with what? Bronze, which is a lot cheaper, and it kind of looks gold. It's got a gold tint to it, but it's not gold, right? It's fake. Um, and God didn't command them to do that, but they, that's what they do. And then not only them, but then they, they go as far as to pretend like it's really valuable. Right. Um, they put it under guard. So um, then the king Rehoboam made bronze shields in their places, verse 10, and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway to the king's house. And whenever the king would enter into the house of the Lord, the guard would go and bring them out and then would take them back to the guard room. So Rehoboam is just lying to himself. Right. He pretend he gets this cheap imitation. And then he puts it under guard, and then the only time it actually comes out is whenever he goes in to see it. Um, and they're like, "Hey, look at this nice, look at this nice stuff." Okay, um, that is a very interesting commentary on kind of an evil 
or a rebellious uh, worship in the Lord's house. That they would replace what was good with these cheap imitations and then pretend like they weren't cheap. Uh, pretend like it was good. So um, the practical application of this, I only have one minute to talk about this. Uh, but the practical application of this is one emphasizing um, what we talked about in Solomon's time, which is when Solomon built the temple, which is the importance of reverence and worship, um, that we do do our best uh, to put forward our best and to not um, make things uh as cheap as possible, if you will, when it comes to worship of the Lord, uh, right? I think a lot of modern American churches um, don't give two thoughts about what should be done when it comes to worship, just whatever's practical. And that should not be our attitude. Our attitude in worship should not be one of practicality. It should be one of what's the best we can offer before the Lord, Right. This is the Lord's house. Um, he's given us this place uh, to worship in week out, week in and week out, and we should we should try and offer our best there. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about with that is that that is especially hard for us today because we live in this world of cheap imitations. Right. We actually don't have. Um, a culture of having nice things, really. Uh, that I think, to some degree, there there can be. Um, people know the difference between something nice and something not, uh, right? Like people know the difference between a Dewalt drill and a Harbor Freight drill. But so often, our culture it wants to just do whatever the cheapest thing is, right? Um, our culture wants to make everything out of plastic, right? Um, and to not um, – if you think about like how often like people eat out of styrofoam now instead of like cooking a meal and eating off of like real plates um, with real silverware, it, it is kind of amazing how much of a world we live in a cheap imitation. And so – Especially in that world, I think we need to be on guard to not bring that into the church, uh, to not bring that in the church. So um, this is one reason why – and it's nothing um, – it's not that individual cups in the Lord's Supper are sinful or that they're not the Lord's body and blood. But I like the common cup for this reason especially because I get to drink out of silver rather than out of plastic when I'm drinking my Lord's blood, uh, which is valuable beyond measure. So that's something to think about. Uh, things like that are something to think about when we're thinking about um, cheap imitation and using the best we can in the Lord's house is um, things like that that, that, we might want to, that we might want to consider. So – um, there, and there are, there are other examples I could give too, but uh, that's where we're going to end with Rehoboam. Any questions on Rehoboam or on reverence? The Noah 
cheap imitation didn't demand the higher they get. The higher price they get. So. Yeah. Uh, at, pe- cheap imitation comes from that's a good point because cheap imitation comes from a worship of mammon, right? And God says you, Jesus says you can't serve God and money. And when money is the bottom line, yeah. of course cheap imitation is going to be what we go for because cheap imitation is always going to be cheaper. It's always going to be uh, better serve your wallet, right? Um, and so that that's a really good point is that um, you can see how idolatry and cheap imitation go together. Fantastic point. All right. Any other questions or thoughts? All right. Let's end with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good gifts that you give us. We pray that our worship today would be in reverence of you, that we would uh, not come to you uh, with half-hearted or uh, cheap hearts, but that our hearts would revere you and worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you would open the hearts and minds of all believers to hear the preaching of your word, to repent of their sins, and to live a new life of faith in the forgiveness of their sins through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.